used to take myself and my younger brother out regularly to a little nine-hole golf course that was near our home. When we used to go away on holiday, it had to be near a golf course, and we would get up really early in the morning before breakfast, and we'd go out and play golf. In fact, it was um, on the third hole of a golf course in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, back in 1971. I remember playing a round of golf with Dad and my brother, um, and a young African boy came running up the fairway um, with a telegram, and he gave it to my father, and the telegram said, uh, you've been accepted for a job in New Zealand, um, so pack your bags and come. Uh, so on our golf outings, it was a great opportunity for Dad to teach us lessons, like keeping Whoops. quiet when others try to hit the ball. Whoops. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, could you turn that off? Thank you. Like keeping quiet when others try to hit the ball. Uh, another one is like when you play a shot in golf and you dig into the ground, they're called divots, and you replace your divot. Another one is when you hit the ball and it's going into the woods, you keep an eye on the ball and you watch it and you mark it with something in the distance, and then you walk straight to that. Um, but one skill that he always stressed was this. Keep your head down, keep your eye on the ball until you've hit it, and don't look up. That is a lesson I won't forget, because he said it every time. Because you know when you hit a golf ball, you hit it, you want to see where it goes. And he says, no, keep your eye on the ball. And you know, keeping your eye on the ball in any game is crucial for success. It's so easy to become distracted with lots of things around you, and many sportsmen and sportswomen have had embarrassing moments when they've taken their eyes off the ball. And I'm going to get Jeanette to play you a little video clip. Thank you, Jeanette. Whoops. Oh my goodness, what a fluff from Robin Sattner! Can he recover? Well, <laughs> oh man, I'm not laughing at him. Definitely not. A real mess up. He's, <laughs> he just forgot. <laughs> Sorry, he just forgot to take the ball. This is fantastic. This is absolutely marvellous. I've never seen anything quite like it. Ja, ich kriege einen Rückpass, ähm, nehme den Ball an, er hat ein bisschen Backspin und ja, dann sehe ich im Augenwinkel halt was Weißes, denke, äh, nach wie vor ist es der Ball, war dann der Elfmeterpunkt und der Ball war woanders. Ähm, ich hole aus zum Pass, will ihn auf Jean spielen, auf die Sechs und ja, habe keinen Widerstand und ähm, ja, dann sehe ich, dass der Ball gar nicht mehr da ist und äh, sich irgendwo befindet. We're gonna take a look at this again, aren't we? <lacht> Oh, dear me. Look. <laughs> this, he, he won't forget this. I bet his mates gave him a hard time in the sheds after that. Today, we're looking at one of the most controversial passages in the Bible as we continue this journey of looking through Matthew's Gospel. And today we're talking about what we call the Olivet Discourse. 
And it's called that because it's about the last things. This is the time when Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite Jerusalem, having been in the temple with the Pharisees, and he's talking about the last things because his crucifixion is coming. Now, this is a very controversial passage um, because there are three main schools of thought or theology, if you like, about the end times. Firstly, there's a group called the Preterists, and the Preterists believe that this has got nothing to do with the second coming at all. It's all to do with the destruction of the temple. And um, that, of course, happened in 70 AD, um, and they believe that the Christian church is now actually the fulfillment of all biblical prophecy. The second group are called the Futurists, and they see all of Matthew 24 and 25 as referring to just the future and focus on end-time prophecy. They see most of this addressing the end times tribulation, and they try to fit past and current events into history and into a biblical framework. Uh, people like Tim LaHaye and Barry Smith would be people who have of that persuasion. The third type is what I call the both-and-ists. That's my made-up word for it. And I'm delighted to know that most theologians fall into that category, people like Karl Barth and Tom Wright and Augustine, for example. And what they see is they see in this passage the destruction of the temple, but they also see a description of the last days, both and. And to help us to understand how this passage works, we need to look at the context. And if you look in verses uh, 1 to 3, you can see that what happens is Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed, and then the disciples ask him a question. And this passage is like a rope. This rope's only got three strands in it, but running through this passage is a four-stranded rope. If you can think of this passage that way, it really helps you to grasp the meaning. The other thing uh, to note is it says here, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said to him, firstly, when will this be? In other words, when will the temple be destroyed? Secondly, and what will be the signs of your coming? And thirdly, what will be the signs of the end of the age? So three things. But it's a fourth standard rope because also in this, Jesus gives advice to Christians on how to react to this. Uh, this diagram um, I have found very, very helpful in understanding some things to do with what we call eschatology, which is end times. You might have seen this before. This line here is the present age in which we live, where my red marker is. So this is the pre-Christ time. Here's the arrival of Christ. And if we carry on that line, eventually 
Jesus will come again and this age, the present age that we live in, will end. When Christ was born and during his ministry, his death, his resurrection and ascension, that began the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was breaking into this present world. And so the end times had actually begun. So when we talk about end times, we need to understand that the end times began with the ascension of Jesus. So if people say, are we in the end times? You could always say, yeah, we are. We have been for the last 2,000 years. That is end times theology. So we are in the end times. We have been. Um, And uh, so this is the region that we live in now. So for example... When someone comes to Christ, heaven has broken into the present. When someone forgives someone a hurt, heaven has broken into the present. When you give a cup of water to someone who's thirsty, in Christ's name, heaven has broken into the present. That is the inbreaking, if you like, of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why we, the Lord says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because we want the kingdom of God to be breaking into the present. And the more we are um, in tune with that, the sooner Christ will return. More about that later. So I, I remember one of the things we saw in Nepal, we saw a woman delivered of a spirit of death. The kingdom of God came upon her and she was just set free. And I've got a picture of her smiling after the meeting and, um, you know, just so joyous. That's the joy of heaven, uh, being set free. So what I want to do now is I just want to briefly talk about each of these four things, all right? Just touch on these four things. The first of all, I want to talk about the destruction of the temple. Now, if you're... um, want to go home and read up Matthew 24, you'll find that in verses 1 and 2, 15 to 26, and 32 to 35, Jesus is talking specifically about the temple. You see, what had happened was Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The Jewish people had been praying for the Messiah to come expectantly. He is the light of the world. And The task of the Jewish people was to be a light to the Gentiles, but they had failed. And so the light of the world, Jesus, broke into history. And of course, what happened was they rejected him. His life was to associate with the sort of people that righteous Jews would never associate with. Tax collectors, lepers, Roman centurions, prostitutes like Mary... And he even healed on the Holy Sabbath day. And he said to them, look, the Sabbath is not made for all your rules. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And they couldn't grasp this. And really, in chapter 23, I think, um, Howard, uh, we were supposed to look at that last week, but we had the girls' brigade service. But if you look at chapter 23, it's all the woes. Woe to you Pharisees. You look like beautiful teapots on the outside, but you're just disgusting on the inside. Because he was really saying that it's all very good to have a form of practice or pretense, but what God's interested is in your heart. And so what happened was, about 37 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the Romans came in and they completely smashed Jerusalem. 
They smashed it. The temple, which had taken 46 years to build, was just demolished. Now, the temple was a symbol of Israel's culture, the presence of God, and the permanence of Israel's religion. And the Romans smashed it. And you know that little verse about, um, you know, where the carcass gathers uh, and the um, eagles or the vultures will gather round? That is a reference to the Roman standards. The standards of Rome would be placed right by the temple. Do you know that that um, attack on that city was horrible? Over one million people died. Some of them mass family suicides. It was horrible. Famines and 97,000 Jews were taken away and captive. The whole city was just destroyed. Now, Matthew wrote this gospel 15 years after the temple had been destroyed, and so he's writing it retrospectively. And so at the end, when, you, when Jesus says, you know, my words will never pass away, Matthew understood what that meant, that Jesus had prophesied the temple would fall, and it happened. The second thing is, um, I want to talk a little bit about the signs that accompany the end of the age. Those are verse 4 to 14 and 23 to 27. You know, Jesus spoke about lots of signs that would happen before the destruction of the temple and lots of signs that would happen after the destruction of the temple over the next 2,000 years. He talked about national and international wars and rumours of wars. I mean, who can never forget the 100 years war in Europe and the Crusades and World War I and World War II? These are wars and rumours of wars. What about what's going on in northern Ethiopia right now as we talk? You know, he said there'll be false Christs, false messiahs and false prophets. In the first century, there was a guy called Simon Magus who said he was the messiah. Moses of Crete in the fifth century and a man called Bernhard Muller in the um, 17th and 18th century, he claimed to be the Lion of Judah, and people followed him. There'll be natural disasters, famines, earthquakes, pestilence, bubonic plagues, Spanish flu, COVID. There'll be all these signs. There will be the breakdown of law and order in many places. Um, I read recently the terrible beheadings in Mozambique that are happening right now, where people are being herded into soccer grounds by the Islamic fundamentalists and just executing people. These are the things that have been happening over the last 2,000 years. You know, there were some people throughout history that have used the current events of their day as a pretext to say that Jesus is just about to come back. For example, in the 17th century, Christians feared that the end of the world would happen in 1666 because 666 is the mark of the beast. They feared that. And when the Great Fire of London happened, which destroyed a lot of the city, they said, yeah, we are, he's just about to return, and of course he didn't return. So what can we say about this? This is what Peter says. He says, with the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He will return, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. 
That's what the Lord desires. He wants humanity to turn to him. So we mustn't be surprised when we hear about these things. These are like the beginnings of birth pains. Now, I've never experienced that before, but I understand it can be quite painful. Yeah, okay, there's a few nods there. Yeah, and, and, and it's painful. I mean, what we see in the world happening today is painful. But Jesus said, do not be surprised when these things happen. This must happen before the new creation bursts into the world. These things will happen. Just like when a baby is born and the new birth, you forget the birth pains, I understand, after a little while. And you're so joyful about what's happening right now. And that's what Jesus is really saying. That's why Paul says the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. The third thing is, what about the actual return of Christ? These, this is what I call the second advent. In verses 27 to 31, Jesus describes what will happen with the second coming. You know, there are two advents. Um, when Christ first came into the world at Christmas, we celebrate Advent just before Christmas, um, but there's the second advent, which is his second coming. Do you know there are over 300 prophecies about the second advent? And just as there are so many prophecies about the first advent, and Jesus did come, he's a historical figure, he's a fact, so there will be a second advent. You know, at his first coming, Jesus came as a suffering servant. At his second coming, he will come as a conquering king. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in the most humble of circumstances. In his second coming, Jesus will arrive with the armies of heaven at his side. At his first coming, Jesus came as a loving, humble saviour. In his second come, he will come as a completely fair and righteous judge. To those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and saviour, they are not guilty. They will inherit the kingdom of God. And to those who have rejected Christ, they will be guilty and hell and destruction is their destiny. Jesus' second coming, he tells us in verse 30, will not be missed by anyone. It will be very dramatic and it will be completely unmistakable. So the last thing I want to talk about, the fourth strand, is what is the Christian response to this? What is the response to this? You may be thinking, what on earth has your golf story and a guy missing a soccer ball got to do with today? And it's simply this. We need to be really careful that in reading passages like Matthew 24, 25, that we don't become distracted and obsessed with the many issues and events that are happening. We need to keep our eyes, our hearts, our minds fixed on Jesus. The writer to the letter of Hebrews said this, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured suffering. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful people so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Throughout this passage, Jesus guides and encourages his disciples not to be deceived, not to be troubled, don't be fearful, to realize that you will not be popular as a Christian in the world that you live in. There will be struggles, there are difficulties, there will be persecutions. But he encourages us to persevere to the end of our lives. He says, hold firmly to God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep at the task of the mission that Christ has given us. So how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Three little takeaways. First of all, everyone needs to ensure, if you've heard this message today and you're not sure that you're a born-again Christian, you need to ask Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins. He died on the cross for you. And you need to repent. Repent means to turn away from the old life that you've been living and turn and follow Christ. You need to follow Christ every day. Jesus said, anyone who wants to follow me needs to take up his cross every day and follow me. Sometimes I know that's really hard. I find it hard. And then you will receive the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of heaven coming into your heart. That is the guarantee. It's the deposit. It's the heavenly deposit. The second thing is this. We need to persevere with our journey of faith. We need to get to know Jesus better. You know, I heard that apparently at the end of World War II in Warsaw, the city was almost completely leveled. And according to one witness, there was only one structure remaining in the main street, part of a structure in the main street of, the, of, the, um, of Warsaw. It was the Polish headquarters of the Bible Society. And written on a wall, a witness could see, engraved in these words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's so powerful when I read that. You know, Jesus warns his followers not to be deceived by false teachers, false Christ. Don't be deceived. You know, they say that a person who handles money often can always tell a counterfeit. Deception can occur when we take our eyes off the real thing, the real person of Jesus. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the word of life. The scriptures are authored by the Holy Spirit. As we read the scriptures, our faith is renewed and strengthened. You know, we're not simply just to rely on other people to interpret the faith for us. That's fatal. Because what happens when the real trials come? We need to develop a hardy, um, solid, firm faith in Jesus so that when we are going through the storms of life, when these things happen... Our faith is strong to stand. And that can only happen through our own spiritual disciplines in life. Prayer, Bible reading, and study. I hope some of you will go away and study Matthew 24. You've probably got lots of questions you want to fire at us. 
fellowship, worship, gathering together for worship, and obedient service to the Lord is what will maintain our faith. And the last thing I want to say is this. Thirdly, give priority to Christ's mission. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's the big clue. Jesus is longing for people to come to take advantage of his death on the cross and his resurrection. So if we want to hasten the Lord's coming, we need to get out there and share this message of Christ with our friends, our family, our workmates, with ever. If somebody's calling out in the hospital, help me, help me, and you can yell out, just call on the name of Jesus, that'll do. We need to not be afraid. You know, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So instead of worrying about the end times, instead of looking at self-preservation and just looking after ourselves, we need to get out there and to move with God into his mission. We actually need to look forward to his return. Are you looking forward to his return? We need to look forward to it. It's good. All worry will go when Jesus returns. I can't wait. I'm a bit of a worry bug, you know. I do worry about things and I, I get worried. And, but I need to be trusting. I need to be looking more to his coming and trusting and reaching out. And, you know, this is a call for all of us, church. And I'd just like to close there and say, you know, God bless you. Do spend some time looking at Matthew 24. Um, consider it. Um, there may be some things in there that will encourage your hearts. All right, thank you. Amen.